Good morning, good morning. You're listening to Pull Up a Chair on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. My name is Andrea Simintov, and I am grateful to be spending this time with you this morning on a beautiful, I'm looking out the window, well, it's a little overcast, but rich, beautiful, I don't know, does hope have a smell? When you open the window, I can smell the hope. We are so, so still deep. We can't say knee deep. We can't say waist deep. We can't say neck deep in this continuing conflict with the barbarians who strive for our destruction. Nevertheless, it's almost Shabbos, and Shabbos is the constant that we look to to gain our strength and um, to connect us to one another. I am very excited. Today I want to talk about, um, of course, we're going to do Parsha and everything that happens, the Torah portion. If one does not believe in the supremacy of Torah, when we juxtapose world events to what actually unfolds each week according to plan. It's not chosen. It's not on a whim. It's not shifted. It's eternal. It's forever. We read the Torah portion that has been assigned to us way before Hamas reared their filthy talons, way before anything that we have experienced has occurred. And yet, there seem to be always, always fascinating, mystical, majestical, and certainly holy connections to what is happening in our real lives and what is happening on the pages of our blessed Torah. So before we go on, let me first say good morning. It's really late at night to those listening in from the United States. I know the East Coast, there's sections that are blizzarded under and yet California is still California. It's beautiful. So welcome. And everything in between. Love it. Canada is with us today. Good morning, Canada. Boketov Eretz Israel. We have so much to talk about. The UK is with us. And uh, Jamaica. And all over Europe. And I know that South Africa is listening in. I'm looking at the United Kingdom. I actually just picked my husband up from the airport yesterday morning. He spent several days at a family simcha in England. So I feel that we still have the uh, the waves of the, the aura of the British colony in my own home. Um, when we talk about habits, I've given a lot of thought to that lately because I know that I myself am always trying to break old habits. Here we are. Well, my goodness, we're well into February. And um, on today's calendar, regardless of what day you're listening to this on podcast, it's the, I believe it's the 15th of February, to the year 2025, the Gregorian year. And um, I know everybody's, have they've already broken their secular New Year's resolutions. Um, I know the gym was very crowded. The gym I go to three or four mornings a week was very crowded that first week in January, a little less uh, the second week. And now I, you know, I can always get onto the rowing machine. I've begun rowing. 
I have found that it's a wonderful full body workout and I'm trying to build it into a habit. I developed some other habits, good habits, starting Erev Rosh Hashanah on the eve of Rosh Hashanah. And I've kept that up. And so out of curiosity, I took a look and I found that there's a study in the European Journal of Social Psychology. I'm sure most of you subscribe. Anyway, um, they found that an, it takes an average of 66 days is required to form a habit with a range between, I guess, for the superheroes among us, 18 days, and then for <laughs> the more plebeian souls that uh, reside on the planet, 254 days. That's a lot of time, a lot of time to dedicate to trying to better one's life physically, spiritually, emotionally, so socially, excuse me. Let me have a sip of water here. Mm. Such a blessing water, such a miraculous, such a miraculous liquid. I mean that it's clear and we take it for granted. Anybody who opens up a faucet or is listening from parts of the world where they have to get their water from streams and the water is not clear. For those of us who are, have the luxury of drinking water today, to take a moment and pause at the nace, the miracle of it all. Okay, I just wanted to take that moment and we shared it together. Um, that the researchers found that skipping the behavior once didn't have a real big impact. That's good to know on habit formation. So it's like if you're starting to go to the gym and you want to do 20 minutes a day on a treadmill or even start 10 minutes a day walking on a treadmill and one day you don't do it, don't get in the car and say, oh my gosh, I'm such a loser. I can't do it. I broke it. I, I'm not doing it. I guess the same thing might uh, apply to... Um, Oh, did I say 2023? It's it's the 15th. I just got a note. It's the 15th of February, 2024. That is the year. What is the joke? Life is like a roll of toilet paper. The closer you get to the end, the faster it goes. Stick a dish. Okay. Um, so really don't give up on those habits. And of course, because this show tends, tries to be a little loftier, I'm talking also about prayer, about communing with heaven. And somebody said to me, I've heard it from several people, like, I want to pray, but you know what? My mind wanders. It takes so long. Someone said to me, it is so boring. And I can't pretend that I didn't get it. I can't pretend, gee, I can't relate. I know that um, I've spoken with my husband about this, and, and this is a guy who has been praying consistently three times a day with rare exception for over 70 years, well over 70 years. And I sometimes say to him, ashamed, I say, I was praying and I found myself towards the end and I couldn't remember if I actually said the morning blessings. There's a, a package of morning blessings we say even before we get into the heavy duty stuff. And I'm well past it and I go, I can't remember if I said it. And he said, you're not alone. Most of us have that same experience. But what I would say to my friends who find it boring, and by the way, I struggle with it. Sometimes I struggle. I get up during the day. I have so much on that agenda, so much on that checklist. But just a switch in perspective, just a switch in the mindset. 
imagine you're being given an opportunity to speak with, I don't know, we don't want to talk about Hollywood, that filth, but your favorite, your favorite public persona, your favorite personality, your favorite teacher, your favorite minister or Rebbe, your favorite king, monarch. Would you sit and say, I really don't want to talk to them today. I don't want to, I, I really don't want to get together with them. It's just too tedious to find 19 minutes to speak with them. My gosh, we would trip over ourselves. Stop everything. Just this past week after last week's show, I was given an opportunity out of the blue, out of the blue. My day was set ahead of me. And then I was asked, it was such a humbling experience. I was asked to step in and speak to a group of really lovely, holy women that day. You know, was I going to say, oh my gosh, no, but I have to do another, I have to do a dark load of laundry? Was I going to say, yeah, but you know, they have yogurt on sale and eeny, meeny, miny, moan, I could, I could speak and meet with this group of holy women in another community and share thoughts, share feelings, um, talk together, laugh together, pray together and have an opportunity to share the things that are important to me or I could do that stubborn sink of dishes. My gosh, I ran. And here, every day, you are being a, and given an opportunity to commune with the Holy One, blessed be He. And we say, it's a little boring. When you just have that little change of mindset, perspective, perspective. Let's see, one second. I'm looking here at my notes. I wrote something toward the end of the show, but I'm going to toss it in right now. You know, even perspective on gratitude. Somebody sent this to me, and I just absolutely loved it. When we talk about gratitude, that it's the perspective that changes everything. Instead of saying, oh, I have to pray. I have to dive in. Things are going on. I have to put it in today. I have to pray. Imagine saying, oh, I get to pray. Imagine saying, I, instead of I have to exercise, I have to take medication to save my life. I get to take medication that saves my life. I get to start my day with exercise. I get to tell someone I love them. I get to eat wholesome food. I get to work and earn money. I get to experience new things. I get to make someone's day better. It's all perspective. And when we change that mindset and think about it towards Shabbos, towards interacting. And I think about that also in terms of the news and the information we feed ourselves. Do we say, I get to poison myself each day? Or do we say, I get to fill my heart and my soul with healthier thoughts, with more positivity? We're not talking touchy-feely, woodstocky stuff. We're talking about the profound understanding 
that every moment with every beat of our hearts, we are being given deep, marvelous opportunities. And if we walk around with a, with a, with a, with a poor attitude, with this wonderful word in Yiddish, a forbidden upon him, a, a, a miserable face about all that, that lays in front of us, we're just squandering, squandering glorious opportunity. So I'm going to go and take some new habits. All right. Booker T. Washington. I know I happen to have been the only uh, then Caucasian, although I do doubt, I do doubt um, the Jewish, any Jewish claim to being Caucasian. But nevertheless, at the time, I did think I was Caucasian. I was in college. I aced black history. Loved it, loved it. And one of my favorite, one of my heroes was indeed Booker T. Washington, who was a former slave. He was born into slavery. I think he was 10 years old when he was um, emancipated from slavery. And he became a, a, a revered American author and educator. Anyway, if we can't hit ourselves on the head and get this, maybe we can listen to the words of Booker T. Washington, who said, a lie doesn't become truth. Wrong doesn't become right. And evil doesn't become good just because it's accepted by a majority. Um, also, just, I mean, I want to start on some upbeat stuff. We have some creepy stuff. I mean, things that we can't ignore uh, for those of us who have boys still in active duty, still prowling the alleyways of Gaza, still working to ferret out the filth that calls for our destruction. I'm breathing with you. We're all breathing with you, praying with you, holding hands with you. Um, my son, blessedly, is home now until his next call up. And speaking with my friends whose sons have and daughters have seen unimaginable horrors and unimaginable active during their active duty know that our babies are forever changed and really in need of peace and prayer and yet there's a flip side glorious pockets of spiritual oxygen um the um the 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 commentator and teacher Sivan Rahav Meir she's just wonderful and she sent out what we call another victory, a victory photograph that we had so many. We don't, we don't want to use the word refugees, evacuees, holy blessed evacuees from um, kibbutzim and moshavim and villages in the south of our country. And there's a group of women who are returning to Sidarot. Sidarot is a city. And they have been uprooted from their home. And they sent a picture. I don't have the picture here. Uh, it must have been maybe 10, 12 babies who were born since in this one hotel since the 7th of October. And um, it's the next generation of the new Siderotes who are returning home. They believe in death. We believe in life. There was a post recently on Facebook 
uh, a woman was debating where to give birth. In Israel, it was very different in America. I knew exactly where I was giving birth. I knew from, you know, seven minutes after conception, you know, just to where you're going to have your baby. And in Israel, I mean, women will walk around with big bellies. They don't really know. They'll find out that day. They'll go into labor. They'll see what's closer. Uh, they'll call the doula. And I remember they were Jerusalem women were telling the pros and cons of Hadassah Ein Kerem, um, Hadassah in Mount Scopus, the um, Sharet Tzedek Hospital. And I can only say this. Many, maybe a couple of years ago on this same program, I interviewed the director of Sharet Tzedek Hospital after I had visited two, three times the new beautiful maternity ward and i'm thinking about it this morning and the new maternity ward at hadassah hospital uh, at sharet sedek forgive me almost all of the windows it's been built millions and millions of dollars and almost all of the windows where tens of thousands of jewish babies are born each year the windows overlook the memorial to the six million Jews at Yad Vashem. So if that doesn't tell you something about the deliberateness, the clarity, and the positive outlook of the people of Israel, then I don't really know what will. Okay. And in between our hope our clarity, our knowledge that we will succeed in this conflict. May its end come soon with no more loss of life. We still get a rude awakening. I kid you not. I thought I was reading a science fiction, science fiction um, essay when I saw that yesterday, Mechablim, in the West Bank, Mechablim are terrorists. They opened fire at, at, at Kibbutz Merav. And I thought to myself, what, they're still crawling out? They're learning nothing? They're still coming out from their snake pits? This filth? They've learned nothing? They're still at it. And who, of course, takes credit Proudly, the Islamic Jihad terror group, the Al-Quds Brigade. Look at these stupid, this childish. I remember boys in my elementary school used to have wooden swords with names like this. Grown men. They take responsibility proudly. It's uh, By the way, the Kibbutz Mirav is, just if you're looking at your map, it um, is right next to it at a butts, if I'm looking correctly, the northern... Uh, it's right near Beit Sha'an, okay? Blessedly, there were no injuries in the attack, no physical injuries. And um, occurred, of course, as children were heading home from school, okay? And maybe a home was hit by bullets. But I mean, still, they learn nothing. They do nothing, okay? So look at your maps. Okay, let's see. Um... All right. Yeah. And also, um, that filth, that vermin, Yach, uh, Yechia Sinwar. Okay. 
who we let out. We let out. He was exchanged. We saved his life. We let him out. And we are burying, burying, burying hundreds and hundreds of precious Israelis because of that filth. So anyway, um, just to let you know that we came across documentation as though we needed documentation, but it clearly states they keep excellent records. I guess they learned it from the Nazis that out of millions of dollars received, a million goes to him. Whatever he wants, he has in his pocket. Hamas is fighting this war and Sinwa is celebrating with his family. Um, Israel has received many, many documents, and the intelligence gathered by our holy troops in Gaza has noted that the recent um, these recent documents detail the transfer of upwards. I kid you not. Now listen to the operative word here or the operative country. $150 million from Iran directly into the pocket of Sinwar. Make you think? Um, Israel has known for years that Iran has been transferring the money to Hamas. Okay? But, you know, how and when the funds were moved into whose hands, we are seeing. We are seeing the love of the Palestinian leadership for their minions. Only for themselves. Okay. Uh, Let's see. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I just received a note, an accurate note, directly from the ticker tape of Israel, excuse me, news wrong, that Sinwar's sister is in an Israeli hospital as we speak, receiving treatment. I guess we just can't stop being Jewish. I know that those friends of Eretz Israel, friends of Am Yisrael, friends of B'nai Yisrael, are equally as incensed. And yet, if we're going to call for transparency, if we're going to be accurate, would I, as a physician, say don't treat her? Damn, this Jewish DNA. Here it is. Look, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm sorry, I pulled away. Just just reported in the Jerusalem Post. Okay, I will look at that later. And um, you will just stay, listen, just keep listening to IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Check out the site. Wonderful, wonderful. You'll get all the dope here, all the skin you'll get here. All right. So listen to an interview recently. Everything I do because I'm, not because I'm lazy, because there's so much I want to share. Um, Israeli government spokesman, spokesperson, let's be PC, uh, Ilyan Levy recently gave an interview. Don't ask me where he gave the interview because that would infer that I'm actually painted. But I just loved what he said. You know, he talks about these two refugee organizations. And I want to tell you something. When I started this show, oh my gosh, it's many years ago already. Seven years, four years. Mm. So be blessed to be part of the Israel News Talk Radio family. I remember we had a policy and I loved this policy. And we're not saying that rules are meant to be broken. But I remember at the time, Just the same way that I know that up until the days of um, Ehud Barak, to say say the phrase two-state solution, 
was like using the F word and expletive in public. Nobody even said such a thing out loud. It was so perverse, so unimaginable, so detrimental. And then you say it enough, you say it enough, it becomes part of the vernacular. You know, we're the only ones that are talking about it. People in the West are talking about, believe me, the Arabs are not talking about any two-state solutions. They don't want a two-state solution. They're laughing at us, tripping over ourselves. They have a one-state solution, okay? And it's my state. And it's the same thing. When I started working at Israel News Talk Radio, we had a policy, and it was a wonderful policy for the time. We did not say Palestinians because it's made up. There are no Palestinians. There are Arabs living in Gaza who have hijacked the term Palestinians. If they're Palestinian, my late father-in-law is Palestinian. He had a Palestinian passport. Okay? There are no Palestinians. But as we see, that water, you know, <laughs> that water is under the bridge because the differentiations that we have to make in this war, most certainly from Gaza, I can't just say Arabs, and then we don't know that I'm talking about Gazans. So understand, when I say Palestinian, you just in your imagine, imagine parentheses, sick, S-I-C, and then close paren, okay? Anyway, Let's talk for a moment about refugees. My gosh, they think they have a monopoly on refugees. Guess what? We Jews, we own it. If you want to talk about indigenous refugees, you're at the right address. <clears throat> but while you're still being refugees, we're bettering the world. We're very involved in high tech. We're medicating and saving lives. We're winning Nobel Prizes. We're sending our children to not Jew-hating universities, hopefully. We're giving, we're tithing 10%, 20% to the betterment of mankind. But, but you just be refugees, okay? And according to Eliana Levy, who really is just so, he's so sharp, um, he talks about two refugee organizations there is one for the rest of the world, and those refugee organizations aspire to find homes, find work, find safety, find water, find housing for the refugees who find themselves displaced because of national unrest. And then there is the separate, exclusive Refugee organization for the sick, with or without the K, Palestinians. Because once a, what's the word? I'm losing my English. Once a reputable refugee organization places a refugee somewhere, saves his life, his dignity, opens up avenues of opportunity to begin his life anew, guess what? He should no longer be a refugee. But that doesn't count. Doesn't count for the Arabs slash Palestinians. Because even though you are a Palestinian living under a Palestinian government, we ain't there. In Palestine, we're not there. 
the gross majority, um, according to statistics, 70% of the people living in the Gaza Strip are classified as refugees. Where were they displaced from? Let me help you with that. Nowhere. Unless you consider the day of their birth a displacement. And when the UN, but why shouldn't they believe that they're displaced? The United Nations, where your tax dollars are stuffing, hemorrhaging money at the Palestinians, tells them, Gaza isn't your home. You don't really belong in Gaza. You have a right to resettle in, yeah, Israel, my indigenous homeland. You have a right to wage a barbaric strike and struggle and Take it over. Don't bother to build your lives better and beautify Gaza. Educate your children. Give hope because you're not going to be there long. And this is why refugee camp, just looking here, yeah. And this is why refugee camps have always been breeding grounds for rage and terror because the West, yeah, the West. And Western tax dollars. Tell them, encourage them, hemorrhage hemorrhage monies into their self-imposed wasteland, which, by the way, doesn't have to be wasteland. The West and we in our ignorance, we in our impotence, we encourage this victimhood. We help them celebrate this manner of self perpetuating why meanness. Just thought I'd throw that to you. Let's see, who's listening in right now? We have, oh, some people have joined. Listen, Ireland has joined us. South Africa, South Africa, you're always with us. Even when you're not with us, you're with us. Germany is with us. And the Russian Federation has joined. I just, actually, I'm just off script. Interesting. I had a client yesterday, uh, born and raised in Russia, now living in Israel <clears throat> and her mother, her grandmother just passed away, it was Niftar in Russia. And she told me that because there's no um, diplomacy between Russia and Lithuania, that in order for her, they're so near each other, she can, you know, they're really, what do you say, as the crows fly? The mother in Lithuania who needed to make arrangements to bury the grandmother in Russia took her three days, takes her three days on a bus to go from Lithuania to the mother in Russia. I don't know where, make arrangements, do whatever she has to do. And then took her three days to get back. My gosh, we in Israel, we in the rest of the world, we in modern nations, Put that in your pipe and smoke it, along with drinking that clear, beautiful water. All right. Um, I was thinking recently, came across also an Instagram. I don't even know how to get into Instagram. It's always an accident. When I see something on Instagram, um, I always know that I got into it by accident because it's always hard for me to access it. But... um, I I very frequently listen to podcasts. I like true crime, have since I'm a little girl. If I had to relive my life all over again, they say, if you had your life to live over, what would you do? And um, I definitely would have a podcast on Israel News Talk Radio, but that would have to be in between the hours I would spend as a forensic investigator. I just absolutely love forensic science. 
But anyway, I listen to a lot of podcasts about missing children, young adults, really heartbreaking stuff, those who disappear without a trace. And um, I think sometimes, I've mentioned before, I think about the holy, holy people of Israel, where only one-sixth of us was merited to leave the land of Egypt, that everybody today who has a claim to Judaism, who is a halachic, a legal, a Torah Jew, is related to that small, blessed group that exited from the land of Egypt. And yet, instead of wearing our crown proudly, so many of us assimilate and ultimately evaporate into oblivion, maybe for eternity, but every so often I see wonderful, interesting people who were not raised Jewish, are, were not halachically, according to Torah law, Jewish, and came back to Judaism and actually converted because that remez, that avak, that, that dust of having been a member of a tribe settled on them and they rediscovered it and they came back. So I think about those who disappear, whether really in real life, physically, spiritually disappear and come back. And the part I always find hardest in the stories of young men and women who disappear is the constant longing of their families waiting for them to return. And I think about that also in terms of the people of Israel waiting for our brothers and sisters who have gotten lost. We're waiting for you to come home, physically home and spiritually home. The families that I read about and listen to podcasts about, there seems to be a theme. So many of them never change their phone numbers. They can't move their homes. They stay in the same neighborhood, even as the neighborhood is no longer appropriate for them. They always keep their porch light on, just off the miraculous chance that their loved one finds their way back. And I was thinking of this recently when I came across an Instagram post, back to Instagram, from the blessed Hillel Fold. And Hillel Fold, I'm going to I'm going to extrapolate because um, because I feel like it. Anyway, um, Hillel Fold asks, he says, and he's talking to our brothers and sisters in certainly the Western diaspora. And he asks eloquently what I frequently ask, not so eloquently. What will it take for you to leave? What has to happen? Are you asking yourselves this question? Would you leave if anti-Semites penetrated Congress? Would you leave if a pop star declared his love for Hitler? Would you leave if Jews were being beaten in the streets? Maybe your answer is, we'll never leave. We'll never come home. 
Hillel goes on and he says, come home. Yes, we've experienced one of the darkest days of our history, but how we retaliate, how we defend ourselves is in our own hands. We decide our own fate. The days of listening to foreign governments tell us how to live and how to defend ourselves are over. Thanks, Hillel Fold. And I would add, no, I would beg you to have the conversations, to take off the blinders, because it isn't someone else's history. It isn't someone else's future playing out on the streets of major cities college campuses and perverted California watering holes. Secret heads up. They're talking about you. They're talking about yours. You have a place here. A miraculous, we haven't changed the address. We've kept the phone number. We are a miraculous place that will allow your progeny to flourish for time immemorial. It's a place where you can take a front row seat on the emergence of continuing Jewish history. And the seat, let me give you a heads up. It's not only reserved for observant Jews, wherever you're listening in from, there's a seat for you. And you know what that seat is marked? There's a label on the back. It says, visionary hero. Okay. Um, yeah. Oh, here's a little bit of upbeat news. If you are, let me just see how close we are. Okay, I'm going to just run this. Two points I want to make before we get to Devar Torah. So very, very quickly, my favorite. Oh boy, am I in love. I am in love. Listen, don't listen to people. People sometimes say to me, you know, they tell me, oh, what's happening? And they give me a litany, a litany of terrible things that are happening to Jews around the world. I'm not oblivious. But just the same way that I don't eat things that harm me, just the same way that I do not consume treif, not kosher food, just the same way as I, having been a former heavy smoker, I say that with great shame, I would not smoke a cigarette because I love life. I don't eat sugar. I don't take drugs. I don't smoke cigarettes because I'm trying to not be complicit in my downfall. Don't listen to people that do not nourish you. So Douglas Murray, check him out, British author, political commentator, guru, magazine contributor, and all about, all about Goyesha, genius, lover of Israel, and truly a sane voice among the loonies. And at a recent, I think it was this week in Tel Aviv, I cannot tell you the venue, I'm going to speak fast, but this is what, I have to listen to Douglas Murray tell me, yeah, 
what do I love about Israel? What I love about Israel is that nobody takes this country's love of life for granted. It fights for it. It doesn't lie back on its achievements. Israel knows it has to fight for it. The reason we can sit here tonight in Tel Aviv in safety is only because thousands and thousands of young men and women in the IDF are on the front lines as we speak. And we all know that. Everybody in this country knows that. This is, for me, the big thing that Israel can show the world. It all goes back to that first demand, choose life. Every single difference in the world exists between a culture that chooses life and one that chooses death. And this country chooses life. But it chooses life in the knowledge that you have to fight for it. And you do so. I always say, it's not what Israel knows. Israel knows a lot. The West should learn from Israel. All right. Thank you, Douglas Murray. I will be, I will be filling my emotional belly with you during the week and other wonderful, healthy supporters of the Jewish state because, because it'll keep me grounded. Thank you. Uh, if you're living in Manhattan... If you're living in Manhattan, please check out up in Harlem. There's a unique Ethiopian Israeli restaurant that has just gone completely kosher and vegan. It has actually has a Tudat Kashrut, a certifi- certification of Kashrut, and it has to. I think it's on the Upper West Side, so it has to. And the restaurant is called, don't we want to know what it's called? Oh, it's the Tzion Cafe. It's an Ethiopian cafe. It's been around for a long time, but... It has chosen this time to go kosher and um, check it out. Next time I'm in New York, I think I'm going to go there. Run by a fabulous black Jewish Ethiopian woman living in Harlem. And um, it's in the Sugar Hill neighborhood. Okay. Gratitude. Let's do some Torah because we're running out of time and we all have to get ready. People, maybe, maybe we can really start turning Friday into Erev Shabbos. I know that after this show today, after I see a couple of clients, I'm in full Shabbos mode. That's what I mean about habits. Give it between, what is it, 18, 16, and 256 days? You can do it. We can do it. This week's Torah portion, watching the clock here. We're not going to watch the clock. If we have to go over, we'll go over because it's that great. This week's portion is called Teruma. And um, according to Rabbi Wine, we have a sip here because we're going to talk about Rabbi Beryl Wine, lives here in Jerusalem. He should stay healthy and live many, many more years. So Rabbi Wine brings down that one of the greatest problems that has really affected religious life throughout the centuries is how we look at material wealth and money in religious life. We know we Jews, don't we constantly, constantly dog, you know, accusations of being money-grubbing, being materialistic. And we know that wealth corrupts and sullies all noble programs and plans. I know that every time I fall in love with a politician or fall in love with a new pundit, I just think, let them just stay to horse, stay pure, stay unsullied, keep the scandal out of it. 
And so the question boils down to that eternal issue as to whether the noble ends, Jewish education, synagogue worship, social, charitable endeavors, do all ends justify the means? As the process very frequently borders on the unethical attainment of money. I know it's something we talk about all the time in this house. You know, the collections, the art of collecting charity for reputable institutions. Um, the collectors, that's how they make their living. There's a percentage that goes to them. And um, it's a very difficult subject. You know, financial scandal has plagued all religious projects, whether it be Jewish or not Jewish, and all ambitions from the beginning of time. And the fact is that the goal is trying to be achieved, a noble goal, and even a morally necessary goal. It makes that temptation to deviate from correct behavior in fundraising much more tempting. And very sadly, the history of religion, I love Rabbi Wine, he uses the word, it is littered with monetary scandals driven by poor decisions. So what do the prophets of Israel say? Even during the first temple times, they tried to address this, but really to little or low avail. Very sadly, religion has a tendency to transform itself into a business. And I know that the Christians listening <laughs> have the same thing, and they're probably laughing or bitterly, bitterly nodding their heads. The same thing. It always leads to the desecration of God's name and really catastrophic disasters. And a lot of commentators and scholars have stated that this monetary corruption was actually the real basis for the destruction of both temples and the continued cessation of temple service even until today. Buildings, programs conceived in holiness, founded by the most righteous of people, they're susceptible over time to fall into the trap of monetary scandal. You know, and yet despite this, the dangers, they're almost inevitable. In this week's Torah reading, it combines the ideas of holy service to God with the necessity of fundraising and material wealth. The Torah apparently, according to Rabbi Wine, is of the opinion that the benefits of channeling the money, using the money for noble good, outweighs the dangers that are inherent in combining religion with wealth and money. And of course, uh, oh, you know, it's the pattern of the Torah in all matters of everyday life, events in society, having to find that balance. Remember, we don't cloister ourselves. We don't have monks. We don't practice, um, oh my gosh, I'm losing, losing English, celibacy as a way of pulling ourselves away from the world. We are intricately and intimately involved in the world, even if the threats of falling susceptible to vice becomes more prevalent because Judaism does not allow for an overly hermit, hermit-like lifestyle. We must remain engaged in the world, in this very flawed world. And yet the challenge is to somehow remain holy, keep ourselves above the fray, a kingdom of priests 
while dealing with the challenges that really affect our everyday lives and indeed the entire society. The holy tabernacle, the Mishkan, it's, it's called to be constructed through heartfelt donations of material wealth, hard-pressed shekels, the mirrors that represent vanity, personal volunteering, and the religion and faith are corrupted with monetary issues. When wealth is applied correctly and through a generous hand, my gosh, everything becomes noble. A little bit on a different topic. Uh, watching the clock, watching the clock. You know, the memories of the enslavement in Egypt and the miraculous experiences of the Exodus, well, we don't let that go. You're right, enemies of Israel. We do not let them go. We try to keep it fresh, and it remained fresh in the minds of our ancestors when they were given an almost insurmountable assignment. What are the words from heaven? Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So we were to construct a spiritual center while still in the desert on our way to the promised land. And this center was also to be known as the Ohel Moed, a tent of gathering or a tent of meeting, the meeting place. It's the place where the nation's leaders and at times even the whole community we were summoned to gather and learn the laws of the Torah that were, ta that were taught in the Ohel Moed. It was here that the soul of every individual who was moved to bring a sacrificial offering or who came to worship and pour his heart out to Hashem was overcome by an awareness of sanctity that elevated, elevated him to higher levels of holiness. These kinds of experiences established, it strengthened, excuse me, the validity of the idea that through this sanctuary, God was truly dwelling among them, within them, in the heart of each and every member of the people of Israel. And it's for this reason that the Mishkan is also referred to as a Mishkan Ha'edut, a tabernacle of testimony, because, quote, from the Torah, it serves as a statement of evidence that God forgave Israel the sin of the golden calf and caused his presence to dwell among Israel. The Israelites had to build the sanctuary by the labor of their own hands, utilizing their own meager resources. These processes alone were sufficient to... um what's the word I want, to imbue, imbue the people with a sense of sacred accomplishment. Quote, great is the value of work since even God didn't cause his presence to dwell among Israel unless they involve themselves in work as it is written and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, close quote. You know, just like the mere involvement in the building of this Mishkan, whether it was putting up a wall or carrying a nail. Even before that ark was placed in the sanctuary, the people merited 
God's willingness to establish residence and make his presence dwell in the hearts of those who participated, regardless in the level of the participation in his construction. So while the Mishkan was for Israel in its early years of being a people, the Beits, Beis Hamigdash, the Holy Temple. Oh, I'm saying that the what the Mishkan was for the people in Israel in those years, the Beis Hamigdash, the Holy Temple was for our ancestors, beginning with the days of King Solomon, Shlomo HaMelech. And at that time also, the people dedicated their strength, their talents to the building of this magnificent structure and the completion. And when it was completed, all of Israel was in aware of those inspirational powers that emanated from the central place of worship. Take a moment. Imagine it. And the Beis Hamikdash also served as a site from which religious values of Judaism were disseminated. And just like the Mishkan in the desert, it was also a center for Torah learning and the main conduit for prayer and supplications. Now, if this is all so esoteric and far away, let's bring it home. The Mikdash, the sanctuary, or let me just see one second. I lost my place here. What is it? So like in the diaspora, Galut, where so many of us are still stuck, the Mishkan, the Beis HaMikdash, was replaced by the Beit Mikdash Me'at, the little temple. What is a little temple? The Beit HaKnesset, the synagogue. And although this, de- this development, it transferred, in a sense, the sanctity of the original Mikdash and assigned the total spectrum of functions, minus the sacrifices, unless your shul is doing something that my shul is not, um, to this newly evolved institution, unfortunately, too many instances that the component of worship, of religious edu- of religious devotion, it's really given a second-class rating in order to make a place for the mundane and earthly interests of those who attend. In such a case, the word bait, house, well, it kind of obscures the more significant word mikdash, sanctity. So that even on occasions when worshipers do get together for the purpose of prayer, not every one of them is aware of the fact that while in the Beit HaKnesset, the synagogue, we're in a dwelling place of God in the presence of the Almighty. So maybe it's important, starting with this Shabbos, we can remember that the in the text, that the mitzvah that tells us to set up a place of worship tells us, Ve'asu li mikdash, let them make me a sanctuary in which the full awareness of sanctity shall be maintained. The word mikdash calls for a place permeated with sanctity. And in essence, one of our primary obligations is to achieve, maintain the proper attitude while in the house of worship. Okay, I know this is giving everyone pause for thought because Vishahachanti Betochem says Hashem, I reside among them, and it would therefore be considered a violation of the sanctity 
of my presence to disregard me in my residence. I want to conclude today because this brings us to our homes. The word Mizbeach, which is an altar. We also have an altar in our own homes. The word Mizbeach stands for four things. Mem for Mechila, which is forgiveness. Zion is for Sichut, merit. Beit is Bracha, blessing. And Chet is Chayim, life. Imagine if we treated our blessed dining table, which resembles a mini mazbeach, a mini altar, like the altar upon which we can fashion all of the aforementioned characteristics that in turn turn our homes from occasionally profane to phenomenally holy. Let me wish you Shabbat Shalom, umivorach, from Jerusalem. <laughs>